0: Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer.
1: And I'm Caleb Meyer. I want us to start here by saying thank you to everyone who has reached out to us about RPGs, whether it be Dungeons & Dragons or other games you've played, and sharing the stories of those games with us. That conversation began in our episode, A Socially Distanced Party of Adventurers, starting an RPG. Now, our team has many tabletop gamers on it, and one of them joins us now. Storytelling Breakdown writer, editor, and producer, Steven Stachowski. Welcome. Thanks. I know
2: I'm. I'm not usually one of the guys behind the mic, uh, but it's always. I'm always happy to be in the studio, and it's good to see you guys. Like Caleb said, I'm. I'm usually behind the scenes. I do a lot of work outside of the the sound studio, coordinating some of the details as well as writing and listening in on the recording sessions. But today is not that day. So uh, I, yeah, I'm very happy to be here.
1: So much of what this podcast sounds like has been fueled by friendships. Now, before we get into RPG storytelling and a campaign that you and Ben ran together, I've been told we need to wind the clock back to the fall of 2010 at Northside High School.
2: Yeah, a long time ago in suburban sprawl of Fort Wayne, Indiana, Heelys were everywhere. 2010, Northside. What a whirlwind that was. I met Ben doing speech and debate or NFL, (laughs) uh, the the real NFL. The
0: National Forensics
2: League. Yeah. And we, I think this kind of outlines how our entire friendship has worked, actually, because we met doing a competition type in NFL that literally we sit around a table and argue with people. Uh, and that's how we got to know each other, was by arguing with each other, which is very, very interesting.
0: And um, we had one year of doing that together. Yeah. And that was our sophomore years, yours at Northside, mine uh, competing for Dwanger. And the first tournament we ever competed against each other was at Northside. Yes. And so that was where we it met. was. And I remember, I think that same year after that, uh, at the Northrop meet, your head coach put you in the wrong division. So you had varsity competitor Steven going up against novice level discussers. That was so bad. And you leveling the playing
2: field. (laughs) It was not fair. Oh, that was a funny season. That was funny. That's that's the same same competition where I had to sing Christmas carols while we were waiting for the rewards results. Because you're always waiting for rewards. Absolutely. Oh, man. It was hilarious. That was a good time. It was good times.
0: And it was that kind of lightning in a bottle that competitively started and ended at Northside because I think we saw each other at the state tournament briefly. Mm-hmm. And then after that, went our separate ways.
2: <laughs> yeah, didn't didn't see you again for, for years.
0: And uh, reconnected though in college and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: That Ben and I talked about in the last episode on RPGs was Fake Core. The system is pretty easy to learn, and Ben, this was the first system that you ever ran as a game master, right? That is correct. And you and Steven used the Fake Core system to play around in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> in our January episode, our seventh episode, A Socially Distanced Party of Adventures,
0: starting an RPG, one of our longer titles too, apparently, I talked about how I discovered the Fake Core system and what it took to begin playing and learning those rules. And you can find that conversation right around the half hour mark, I think, in that episode is uh, where we start talking about Fate. And that gives you my side of getting into the Fate core system. When I wanted to get
1: into it, I think one of the first people I reached out to to play the game was Steven. So let's hear the story from your side of things. Describe your experience diving into Fate before you reached a galaxy far, far away. And if you need to provide some context for your RPG experience, go for it.
2: Yeah, oh man, that's gonna that takes a little telling. So uh, it starts out the gate with reconnecting with Ben. So we hadn't seen each other since 2010, effectively, maybe bumped into each other here and there. But he decided to reach out to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, to get me to go along this college retreat. My wife tells me who messaged her about going on this retreat, and I go, who? She goes, Ben Clemmer. He said he's a friend of yours. I went, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a name I have not heard in a long, long time. Very true, very true. Long time. So we got involved in the... I I did that retreat. Long story short, did that retreat. We reconnected, started getting involved in some of the game nights that he would host at his house, and eventually he got me to agree to do Fate. Fate was by no means the first time I'd ever played an RPG. My start in RPGs came in the hallowed halls of Dungeons & Dragons. Unfortunately, it came in the start of the fourth edition, which is rough. Really, really rough.
1: Fourth is a little... It's not as simple as fifth edition is. That's the very nice way of saying it's it. It's not as simple. It has a lot of merits, but there's a lot that was improved.
2: Hey, I, I actually kind of really enjoyed the combat system with my dailies and my encounters and my at wills because in fourth edition they made one of my biggest players characters was a vampire. And they made vampires a playable class in fourth edition. And some of the stuff that I could do was very cool. But that's how I got started. I got started in D D, which was great. And uh, I played with a bunch of fraternity brothers in college. So when Ben approached me about doing...
0: It's worth mentioning that what Stephen is about to tell you more about his side coming into Fate is right before either of us got married. Uh, Melissa and I got married in early August of 2018. Stephen and Georgia tie the knot two weeks later. And the fact that we started a new RPG experiment with less than two months to go before the big days says a lot.
1: Very, yeah. very ambitious.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I'm not sure if I thought so at the time. Because I had kind of taken a hiatus from from D&D with the, with the fraternity brothers and I hadn't really been playing much at all. And so Ben comes to me with this idea of doing a tabletop RPG that I didn't have to build a character for and that there were quote unquote not a lot of rules for. They're easy to pick up. Which I would later yell at him about because there's a ton of rules because it's a tabletop RPG. So he approaches me with this idea that we were gonna start doing this in the Suicide Squad which you mentioned in, in the episode, uh, Socially Distanced Party. So I came to the table uh, first as Deadshot from DC Suicide Squad, where Ben had done all of the setup and prep work, and we quickly found out that Deadshot did not work as a character for me with the rest of the party, and I got switched over to playing Rick Flagg, which was even more fun. And, and after a few episodes of that, some of the other players and I were talking, and we mentioned how cool it would be to build our own characters. And I said, yeah, but where are we going to put these characters? I, like, we have D&D, so fantasy doesn't make sense because we might as well just play D&D. And the idea of Star Wars was brought up. So then I went to Ben and I said, hey, we should make original character Star Wars content and run a campaign. You should do this. Because at the first I was like, you do it because you're already running the game and I'll play. And it'll be fun.
1: Now, I wasn't there for this moment, but I can picture the look of absolute joy that crossed Ben's face when you mentioned that. And after you sold the idea to him, what happened? Talk me through building these characters, making the setting, everything involved with it.
0: So coming out of the Suicide Squad sessions and also worth noting the hilarious connection with you switching from Deadshot to Rick Flag was the fact that your wife, Georgia, was playing the Enchantress. Uh So you're playing the characters who also have the romantic dynamic in the story itself. And
2: I will state that the first look that crossed his face was fear because (laughs) he knew that I was going to unleash a monster no matter what I did.
0: (laughs) It worked out that... Steven knows so much about the Star Wars universe, even more than me, and we were able to start plotting out early on with encyclopedic knowledge of world we intend to build combined with knowledge of gameplay and structure and mechanics of the game. And fake character creation has pretty simple math, and when we introduced the game with Task Force X, having everyone coming in not having to worry about their characters... Made it so everyone just had to worry about pl- picking up the game. They're just learning about the roles, the checks, the economy of the game of Fate Core. I don't think we talked about that too much in, in the socially distanced episode where you have what are called fate points where they're given to you when bad stuff happens to your character or they're used to compel some of the aspects that make your character who they are. Some of the, the One of them is even called the trouble, the character flaw that is fundamental to your character. And that's when Fate points are given to you, but you can also spend them to boost some of your skills to compel uh, special aspects called stunts that can give you specific bonuses in specific situations. And that's a lot to learn and pick up on anyway without even having to build. But Fate, like a lot of other RPG systems, has a really cool, somewhat collaborative process of building characters. And I think there were, I think it was six of us around a table when we first introduced our party and were able to put up some connective tissue between them. And no character knew everyone, but there were some of what the game calls, again, aspects uh, that tied one character to another. And this was really the only time that we've done this in a fake campaign where we had a group around table and everyone gets an aspect that ties them to at least two other characters.
3: Yeah,
2: except nobody built their character together, which was kind of defeated the whole purpose. Everybody built characters with either both of us after the initial conversation of, okay, yes, we want to do Star Wars, but you know the game, Ben, and I know the world, but together we can we can run this campaign. So we made this call to co-DM, to co-Game Master, which that got really interesting. We'll touch on that in a, little bit, a little bit later. But then everybody built their characters. You know, the players that we were going to have at the table were told, hey, we want to do this. They built their characters one-on-one with either just you or with the both of us, and so they came to the party And the fact that not every character knew knew everybody really shone through in the role playing because they didn't get to build their characters together, which is very cool. And it
0: especially made a difference when we got to our first session. But before we talk about some of the moving pieces, let's learn who the Knights, the Pawns and the Bishops were. Let's talk about who those characters actually were, who is inhabiting that world. Mm. Because I realized in the Suicide Squad sessions with Task Force X, I would wind up playing the leftover characters or the additional party members that are kind of the cannon fodder on the mission. If there's no player there who's playing as Killer Croc or Harley Quinn, then that's the character I wind up running. And I realized as the DM in the Star Wars campaign, I wanted to have a character that I was specifically playing, a DMPC. And that was Nukon, who is a Keldor, and as far as Star Wars species go. That's the same as the Jedi Master Palcoon. so orange, leathery skin, uh, mask, and eye covers. And I pictured Nukon as basically, uh, on the surface, your Merchant class, shipping and receiving type, yeah, I can get you there uh, in terms of just being willing to barter and use uh, his ship. Uh, he's also was, at one time, the the tallest and the biggest member of the party. That did change. Yes, it did. eventually did change. But it made sense to have a player in the party who had kind of that tanky physique defense who could absorb a lot of hits, uh, who also was then kind of the paladin type, and he was... A quiet, careful mentor uh, for some of the other characters involved, especially uh, another character uh, named Druah, who is a Twi'lek. Visually, I realized uh, in watching the first season of The Mandalorian, th- the presence of this character isn't really a spoiler. But the fact that I think it's in the sixth episode of the first season of The Mandalorian, there is a purple Twi'lek mm, character mm-hmm. played by Natalia Tenna, the, who we might also yep. know from Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. Yep. Very similar there to Drua in terms of visual, but then Drua had some Jedi lineage, and that was kind of her common thread with Nukon in terms of him kind of being the mentor figure who knows the Jedi history and lore, is not a Force-sensitive character himself, but was there to help guide some of the Force-sensitive characters. And the shipping element uh, kind of get away because ultimately we didn't wind up using Nukon's ship for very long.
2: We used a different no, one. No, we, we used Silk's ship. We each out the gate decided, yeah, we're going to have our own DM characters, our own Game Master characters. Because, again, like Ben said, as the DM, you either get the non-player characters, which is your job, or if you have a squad like the Suicide Squad, you get the ones that nobody wants to play. Although Killer Croc, I feel like it was completely underutilized and was <laughs> utilized on a couple of occasions brilliantly.
0: C- couple um, of examples. It would ultimately just be who's on the mission and then who had to drop out at the last second. Yeah, so I, there were sessions fate. where I played a little bit of everybody.
2: Yeah, with Fate. That, with uh, with the Suicide Squad, that was very true. But with going into Star Wars, our plan was to have that flexible aspect of Suicide Squad kind of go away and to have a very consistent party. So we got Silk, who was, uh, was my character. He was a multi-leveled spy. To put it simply, he was actually working for the Empire, but not really, and then he turned out to be working for the Rebels, but kind of, sort of, and he was loads of fun to play and to develop. He was connected to one of our other major characters, who was Brack, through some business dealings with his gambling on a swoop bike race, and of course, being a spy, he has multiple
0: He's hedging his bets. Yeah, he's got multiple outcomes he's okay with.
2: He's got multiple outcomes that he he's willing to willing to make money on, but he's also got multiple aliases that he can draw from. That was kind of the key concept to his character.
1: Now, I'll kick you if you don't talk about this, Stephen, but Silk is a reference to one of my oh, favorite yeah, he totally book is. series totally is. from a kid, which is the Bulgariad yes. written so, by David Eddings. Yeah,
2: I definitely stole the character concept from David Eddings. He's brilliant, brilliant writing, uh, where Silk in, the, in that is a professional spy. It's what he does. He is one of the good guys. He's a little bit less shadowy-motived, although he never you never really know what he's going to do in that series, than my Silk, who for a while we got the party thinking was a double agent because he was. And so he had all these multiple identities. Yeah. The
0: first one that we meet when he's talking to Brack in our first session was essentially a cowboy in space.
2: Yeah, and so Captain Eldabar was the first alias that the party met, um, and he and Silk are synonymous. He was... I mean loads of fun to play and he was mostly only connected to Brack. Brack was played by one of our really good friends and he was a young Imperial cadet. He was a, training to be a pilot and he was kind of this street rat street wise kind of a kid who would bar back at this local pub that everybody was going to be at to bet on the swoop bike race. That's how he met Eldabar who just kind of seems like a bar rat and you have this kid Brack Kind of Latching on to Maybe a little bit more Is going on to Than it seems Captain Eldabar Silk And as it turned out Brack was actually The best pilot So even though We eventually ended up on Silk Captain Eldabar's ship
0: You had a clear first choice For first officer Yeah
2: we had a clear first choice But also we I had a history In fate of not being able To roll drive Or flight checks To save my life <laughs> So I was very careful to make sure that somebody else in the party was picking someone who could do that because I wasn't about to kill the whole party because I can't fly.
1: The dice gods are the, cruel.
2: They're cruel when they need to be. Um, I was good at almost everything else, just not driving a vehicle. Yeah, if you ever.
0: if you were behind the wheel, it wasn't going to go well. <laughs> and oh, it doesn't gosh. matter what
2: character, every character I've played in Fate has been garbage at doing that, and I don't know why, but that's beside the point. So then you, got, you had Brack, connected to Saf, which was an interesting complication.
0: Saf was an interesting character for a number of reasons, yeah. And she was a counterpart to Brack. They're both Imperial cadets. And she also was not our brainchild, because she was a character that was a connection for the character Brack coming in. And our friend Casey, who played Brack, said, hey, here are some of the people that Brack knows. Which, that's character building kind of 101. You do have some connections in the world. It's just... Saf was so close in-universe and also gave us an opportunity, given our first session centered around a street race, and Saf is competing in that, we immediately have a vested interest from one of our characters at the table, thanks to Brack wanting to make sure that his friend ideally wins or at the very least doesn't die during the outcome of the race.
2: Yeah, you got the feeling that the race was definitely a high-stakes pod racing kind of a deal where not a lot of people make it to the finish line in one piece. But Staff wasn't originally intended to be a player character. No. And, um, and she became that way. <laughs> she
0: did. And that we'll definitely get to because the first, and I, I always think of it in, in seasons, the first full season that we did of Star Wars Fate, to this day it is the Fate campaign that I've run that has had the most control of characters affecting the outcome. Mm-hmm. The Suicide Squad stuff was so mission-based, they were going to get from point A to point B pretty much regardless of the tangents, even though playing out those tangents was always going to be really fun yes. for the most part. <laughs> oh, yes.
2: Anything with Captain Boomerang turned into highlights of, of those oh, sessions.
0: Well, the fa- And yeah, when we started you guys as Deadshot and Boomerang and instantly you both have shoot as your best skill and instant rivalry, yeah, no, it was... Yeah, very it, funny. It was great from the start. <laughs> and then later seasons of Star Wars, we kind of moved away a little bit from some of those outcome-based storytelling just because we had elements that we knew we wanted to get to because our later on we got to a mystery or, or more of a sandbox element. Mm-hmm. But season one, everything was still contained, but the player's decisions definitely affected the outcomes. And we'll definitely get delve into that a little bit more. We had another character in the group named Nero who essentially was a saboteur. He was former Rebellion and Resistance. He was still on Corellia and hadn't left and was kind of harassing the Empire where the opportunity would present itself. He also was Alderinian. In our universe, we set it up so that the destruction of the Death Star happens right at the beginning of our campaign and that's the timeline that we're in we're starting right mm-hmm. with the end of a new hope and we'll and talk how we got to universe. that
2: yes we'll talk about how we got to that as soon as we get through the characters absolutely which was fun it was B- very fun
0: but it means when we meet Nero he is basically coping and not yeah. well so he-
2: Alderanian, Alderan, that's the that's the planet that Leia is from that they blow up in episode four you know everybody sh- hopefully knows that but just in case anyone's <laughs> listening and they don't um I'll, I'll drop that right there for you
0: And we got an interesting dynamic with Nero right out of the gate because Drua, through her own situation, was actively interested in the race having a different outcome than Saf winning it. So our friend who's playing Brack is rooting for one thing. Meanwhile, our friend who's playing Drua has asked Nero to help rig the race by blowing up a bridge and changing the course and hopefully the outcome along with it. And so we get some tension with our characters right from the first session.
2: Actually, I think at... By the time all everything was said and done, we had three different bets on three different racers. Oh, yeah. Plus Silk hedging all of those against everyone else as well. So then with Nero, his introduction brought us to Vrolin, who I think was the most interesting... I actually thought he was the most interesting character concept because going into an RPG, you want your character to be kind of combat effective, and Vrolin was completely useless in combat. And it wasn't... Even necessarily because of the dice, it was because he was designed not to be doing that. He was designed more as a support character. He was a Balisarian, if everybody, if anybody remembers. Uh, you right, want to buy some death sticks? Yeah, you don't want to sell me death sticks. Um, I
1: don't want to sell you death sticks.
2: So those that's the, the the race that that lovely, lovely meme of a character is. is called a Balisarian. So he's super attuned to the emotional state of people around him. And that's why they tend to be kind of druggies because that gets overwhelming very quickly and so he gets almost captured I think is probably the best way to talk about it by Nero in the very right before any of the characters have met each other but he's an imperial engineer so he's got some of the tech expertise and he's got some of the chemical expertise but he doesn't have any of the combat abilities like Silk who has a, a high shoot or Brack who had a fairly high shoot or Nukon who had a stupidly overpowered physique uh, Vroland didn't have any of those things so he made up for it in some interesting ways uh, He ended up with Nero when Nero essentially got hired To rig the race for a specific outcome And it also our friend Caleb making uh, Roland former Imperial gave us kind of an even set list because neither none of the party wanted to be exclusively rebel or exclusively Imperial when we when we made the decision to start where we did We told the party as they were developing their characters, you know, hey, this is where we're starting. And across the board, I expected everybody to be like, okay, the rebellion, here we go. And I'm sitting here going, cool. So we're going to get a party full of rebel sympathizers and I'll be the one imperial mole. And and I was kind of looking forward to that. And then nobody wanted anything to do with the rebellion. And I went, oh, that's
0: sad. This Um, changed quickly. This changed very quickly. And we had at that point, because Brack and Staff were both Imperial, but were also Rebel double agents, so kind of dipping into both pods there. Yep. You've got Nero's former alliance, Vrolin's former Imperial, Silk's got connections to both. So again, riding pretty much down the middle, I and mean, then everyone else was basically free agents.
2: Yeah, criminal underground kind of deal. <laughs> we played into that a lot. Yes, we did. Because and... it's the only thing left. If you're not going to do the Empire, if you're not going to do the Rebels, you got to get into that criminal Underworld that is so wonderful and rich in the Star Wars universe and That brings us
0: to Nukon arguably not being my only DMP. Yep, though the way that this played out uh, is kind of hilarious to me I created several racers for the first session on Corellia and Really really the only one I didn't was SAF mm-hmm. and then we had a bunch of other archetypes for the others in that we had one that was connected to a syndicate that drew was trying to get to win we had another one who was likely an Imperial Informant. We had one who was a hopped up druggie that ran his own gang. We had another one that had that was a spy that had some interesting history with Yeah, Silk. I think I
2: brought I brought that yes, Vesper you did. to the yes, table. So, this was one of our five racers. Five? Do we have five? Six. Racers? Six, six racers. Six, right? Because
0: we had I, I introduced the three guys first because it mm-hmm. was Torin, Persian, and Gilborn Yep, yep, yep. Were those three. You brought in Vesper. Casey brought in Saf. And then I brought in Kelia Uh who was basically your femme fatale wild card as she wound up joining the party later. The way I often described it is Nucon is the super ego telling you why what we should do should be more moderate. Let's consider the consequences. This may not be the best idea. And Kelia was the id of the party. Let's do it. If there's a bad idea that someone has, she's probably going to be on board. Also, casting-wise, when we talked in our last conversation about RPGs, just about some of the ironic connections, visually in my head, uh, I had her played by Rosario Dawson. Again, plucking our racing characters at the beginning of that session, playing out the race, and Kelia winds up in the party just by the results of the dice. Because throughout yeah. that session, we were just rolling, okay, who's in first, who's in second, how's everybody doing? And when her speeder crashed, she just happened to be in rebel-controlled territory, not imperial-controlled territory, which made it so
2: she didn't get captured. Mm-hmm. So then uh, you have the cast, right? So we have, oh, man, Nukon, Brack, Silk, Saf, Nero, Vrolin, Drua, and Kelia. Did I miss anybody? Of the initial cast there? That was the the, the party at the table. It was a gang of eight at the beginning. It was the party at the table. That's who we started the first season with. Some of them were not intentional, but by the end of the first episode of the first season, that's where we were. And uh, throughout all of that, we had to also then start figuring out, as we're getting our character concepts turned into us before the start of the season, we had to figure out some sort of a big bad. And of course, starting in the heart of the Galactic Civil War, with the destruction of the first Death Star, you had to have an Imperial big bad. Um, And that took the form of Ben's uh, honestly Ben's best villain. <laughs> um throughout the throughout the course of of the time that we played was Ben's best villain his name was Commander Bazon Striker. I couldn't remember what his rank was. That's bad. I should know that.
0: You're good. Well, and <laughs> command well and Bazon funny enough was my character name that I always used when I played Star Wars Battlefront 2 when I was growing. Uh-huh, up. So, there we go. <laughs> So Bazon gets a second life. Uh, Bazon, I, think, I think we called him Bazon more often than we called what, him Bazon. You, well, it's like called Bazon. Striker Falcon either way. Falcon. Yeah, what are you fair. Do? So Stryker winds up being this head of an imperial unit who wears the armor of an imperial stormtrooper. Translation: When there's a lot of them around, you can't tell who he is,
2: which made him terrifying. Mm-hmm. Made him very terrifying. And then eventually, we got to actually adding another player to the table, who was another um,
0: another imperial. imperial defector.
2: She didn't like the funny thing. is, So Morena was this was a medic. We realized after about two episodes that our party had zero abilities to heal because while Nero as a character was supposed to be Healy, his player uh, conveniently forgot that ability a lot, so we had no we had no healing type, and so we added in another friend or, of ours to I, I, the table. I would also
0: argue that we just didn't have a healer who had the a skill like that in Fate is going to be lore. Yeah, it's, that's it, true. Is just a catch all uh, skill in Fate that if you have a knowledge of something really specific, it could be a lore, and that could be anything from. A knowledge of like a history subject to something medical for your healer Mm -hmm. and i would just argue we didn't have a healer whose lore healing ability was high enough to be able to deal with the quantity of injuries our party would
2: sustain so we ended up adding in morena eventually
1: so you guys had your cast of characters at this point but now you needed a setting talk me through that decision making process because star wars is a massive galaxy so what was your guys's rationale for what the first season was going to be
2: so I'm a huge fan of the old Republic. So I think originally when I was trying to sell Ben on star Wars, I wanted to go to the old Republic. Like we're talking 4,000 years plus before the uh, episode four and he wasn't super sold. So we, I, I ratcheted back my nerd dumb a little bit and uh, we settled, we talked, I think a little yeah. bit about the fall of the old, of the Republic, you know, that's like the prequel yeah. and quickly threw that out. Cause we were worried somebody, <clears throat> one of our players was going to bring a Gungan to the table. And uh, I wasn't about to have that.
0: <laughs> and the ultimately, yes, I knew I was going to be more comfortable DMing in the context of the original trilogy. And then at that point, it kind of became an opportunity to have this lightning rod of a moment of the destruction of the first Death Star. Mm-hmm. And the way we introduced our characters was we kind of worked with everybody to figure out, okay, here is where your character was when the Death Star exploded. Yeah. and go through each interaction. And that was everything from Brack finding out about it from his commanding officer, who also was helping him in defecting and working with the rebels, to uh, Nukon and Drua also being on Corellia and winding up in a fight with some locals that tells you everything you need to know about their history. And, right. uh, their, and at least Drua's ability as a fighter, Nukon hadn't really shown anything yet. It also involved Nero saving Rowan's life because there's a malfunction on a ship that gets shot down and an engine fire that wipes out his entire engineering unit, and Roland's the only survivor, and Nero gets him out of there. And then, oh wow, the way we introduced Captain Eldabar was hilarious. Yes, because Aldabar, he was. He he's was at special. the bar. Uh huh. He has a bunch of technology in his gauntlet, in his arm, that in a fake arm, essentially, yep. that allows him to interface and manipulate and it's also where he receives messages and he basically gets a notification that is hey the Death Star just exploded well he's at the bar next to somebody and he's drunk so as soon as it flashes up he like is tapping his arm to try to make that hologram go off
2: and then it's like trying to hit the silent on your cell phone in the middle of like a lecture and you can't find it it's that panic feeling of oh crap everybody knows it's my cell phone shut up shut up shut up shut up
0: and then you're also a secret agent who knows that the guy next to you definitely shouldn't have seen that so you just clock him and then start a bar fight.
2: <laughs> <laughs> gotta love the bar fights. If you're gonna be a space cowboy who pub crawls, you gotta you gotta love your bar fights. We did settle on a world before getting into any of that, which was Corellia. We settled on that mostly because of the in-universe context of their, The Imper- one of the Imperial Flight Academies is there. And we wanted to center a lot of our opening plot points around that.
0: Also worth noting that this was the same year that Solo A Star Wars Story came out and... The first act of that film is also set on
2: Corellia. On Kirelia, you want to know something interesting? I never watched that film until way after we had played through most of season one. That wasn't even a blip on my radar. Because I'd heard, i had intended to go see it, and I'd heard really bad press, which I don't think the movie deserved. Which We can have that conversation another time. And so I just never went and saw it. And so I didn't even realize. I did know that in the old canon, pre-Disney Purge, uh, just how I refer to the Disney takeover, the purge, which most, I think most of the internet refers to it as the purge, but whatever. That was Han's home planet, even pre-Disney. Mm-hmm. So that, which was kind of cool, but it, it did have the flight academy.
1: At this point, you guys have your characters, you have your setting. Give me a like basic recap of this crazy first season that you guys went on the oh first
0: episode
3: <laughs>
1: was nuts
0: <laughs> in so many ways and because we knew we didn't want to have the standard RPG meet at a tavern go but we even did. though we did have, have a, a, a tavern at the center of the action but it did definitely was just one of many elements. Yeah. Silk and Brack are there <laughs> negotiating a business arrangement while Drua is trying to sabotage the race and working with Nero to do so. Meanwhile, Nukon is off unloading some suspicious cargo that he's there to deliver to the Alliance, and then that gets complicated. And so the first session had so many opportunities for actions and interactions. as characters are running to and fro, and then in the middle of it, this race is going on. And everybody there has some varying interest in the outcome of that race and could take various opportunities uh, to sabotage it because uh, ultimately you and Casey both wound up shooting at, at the co- racers. Yes. yes. Uh, it's critically Casey, critically injured one.
2: And I actually you, killed one. You straight up killed uh, a
0: <laughs> Gilmore Fide, Absolutely.
2: And it wasn't the person I was trying to hit either. And I was quite disappointed by that.
0: Oh my word. And the end result of that is once the race has concluded running across uh, the way we played it was the Karelian capital that we were in had basically been a war zone for Alliance versus Empire for quite some time. Yeah. And there's essentially a DMZ dividing the east most of the city that the Empire controls from the western outskirts that's been bombed into oblivion by the the Imperials that the rebels are trying to cling to. And so we flee to rebel territory and then the second session is going with the rebels to try to successfully get off the planet because once the Death Star has been destroyed there is a planet-wide flight ban in effect. We also decided early on to have Bazon get on board Nukon's ship while Nukon wasn't there and steal some cargo and just kind of compromise the ship in a way that was scary enough to the party that it's like, we need to find another ride. Mm -hmm. And from there, we get into what you and I both, we've talked about this in hindsight, what I wish we had done more of was having the party on the ship. Because the ship you picked was perfect to make it so that the party had to interact and explore in such small confines and once we added Morena later on we even had the perfect number and the perfect gender breakdown of the crew from Firefly and it did feel like that in a lot of ways yeah
2: the ship so like eventually we we got off Kerelia for multiple military political reasons that was a lot of fun to reason our way through as game masters it was survival the party um, was, but yeah, was just was trying to escape trying not to get crushed by the boot of the empire right And they end up on Captain Eldabar's ship, which nobody questioned what his ship was, except Brack, who knew what it was. And I took a ship from the old cannon called a VT-49 Decimator. And it's essentially a large strike vessel. Not massive, but large enough to fly in a whole squad, double as a bomber. Like, it had a lot of functionality, but it also had crew cabins, a mess hall... The flight deck that you, you know, the command deck and then maintenance base. It was big enough. It was comparable to the Falcon, uh, which I think provided a lot for the movies. So why not? You need that for your party. And uh, the only person who knew what it was because of their his training was Brack, was Casey's character. And nobody questioned why the Space Cowboy had a super secret elite Imperial vessel. I'm still amazed that nobody called that out, but that's okay. But some of the best, yeah, some of the best character interactions we had in season one were on the ship.
0: But between the dialogue of the characters, either in that scenario, all the ways that, and we've talked about this before, the concept of true character being revealed under pressure. Mm -hmm. And then everything from trying to escape Corellia and seeing how our characters, seeing the decisions our characters make. Because Brack had a kill shot on the racer he was targeting and didn't take it.
2: Yes, chose not to take it.
0: Yeah, and so we have these moments where we're seeing, okay, where are people's morals at how are they functioning nero is searching his cloak for a flask to take a drink of pulling it out and then realizing oh nope that's a detonator putting it back (laughs) trying to find our
2: drunk explosive expert (laughs) oh gosh and
0: Um, just and then all of the ways that we could kind of push a little bit let's dig into this character's troubled past let's mm -hmm. see how this character deals with a romantic entanglement and just all the different ways or more accurately an
2: ex-girlfriend that wants to kill him
0: Yes. I mean, Vesper did shoot you in the first session. That is he did. She
2: did. She did. Uh, to be fair, I shot her. So, you know, it's all fair in love of war, I suppose. So we had a really cool interactions on the ship. We ended up running to Onderon, which is a planet that had a lot of play in the Old Republic, so I did get my wish eventually. And we got some really interesting interactions in the only city on Onderon, which is this massive city called Isis. The party split almost right out the gate and went like three different directions Yep. Uh, once we got there, and all somehow ended up being chased out of the city through multiple weird scenarios. Well,
0: this is where, again, the the decisions that the party was making were affecting the world. Because Drua's drag racer that she was being threatened by the Black Sun Uh, Crime Syndicate to have win the race didn't win she now owes them copious amounts of money. Yeah. Also because then that character she owed money to was shot down by Nero when he was firing in circles using the ship's cannons, that yeah. situation's now 10 times worse. And so we get to Isa's and know that if there's any kind of a Black Sun presence here that identifies us, we're in trouble.
2: The party effectively added themselves a second villain via the Black Sun. Mm-hmm. They're a Star Wars crime syndicate, but... That was not our intention when introducing them—that they would ever become a villain. No, which was very funny. And then you get to Isis, and we added in two more crime syndicates. We hit—we hit the trifecta.
0: We have the Crimson Dawn. We have the Huts. We have hilarious connections with both uh, that are worth mentioning here. Uh, the Crimson Dawn representative on Isa's. We had that character have a romantic connection to Kelia from Past dealings. We also had that character visually being played by Pedro Pascal, but more in the visual mold of Open Martell from Game of Thrones. And then the fact that, again, Pascal's later
2: cast in The Mandalorian. In The Mandalorian, single handedly holding up the the Star Wars universe, you know?
0: And spawning every spinoff known to man. (laughs) Then, and some known only to Wookiees. Then the other side of that was The Huts, where (laughs) we pulled. From a game of Betrayal Legacy, where Casey is playing a character whose name he would only say in the most annoying voice possible: uh, Jabalwin. 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 And that sounds hut ish not so, really <laughs> so that, it sounded hut enough for us to make jabal win the hut I think the we did it mostly,
2: actually to tick off another player who happened to be at both tables that is fair and, it, and just because their reaction was perfect yes
0: and that is where we play out from there so there so there is that scenario but basically then at that point it's the party trying to make dealings and Isis that go so south so quickly because we're bargaining with people we should not be bargaining with and as steven mentioned getting chased out of the city to another landmark outside of Isis, that then gave us two more sessions worth of content.
2: Yeah, so we ran outside of the city and ended up at an ancient temple inhabited by a very, very mean, nasty Old Republic Sith, so I really did get my wish about the Old Republic because we kept working it in, so we ended up at this temple, and this evil, nasty, mean Sith by the name of Freedan Nad uh, possessed myself because I wanted a chance to be the bad guy. And it worked out brilliantly.
0: And this is where, again, I think we all have an appreciation for RPGs because the ways you can create tension, it is like you are the character living through the story Mm -hmm. and experiencing a scenario where you are far outgunned. You are up against a force-using enemy, and no one in your party is anywhere near strong enough with the force yet to pose a strong threat. And the battle against NAD, in terms of just the game mechanics involved, we set up i think at that point we're up to session five and what was like an eight session season arc Mm -hmm. we set it up so you basically had almost two sets of damage like basically you battle the boss down to it's like all right we've got their health bar empty we're good wait a second another color behind yeah huh that's exactly what we did so suddenly you reset you're still going you're even angrier now we keep our boss our enemy on the table and then the other side of it was as that session went on we had characters slowly getting eliminated from the fight. Mm-hmm. And it worked out in that. Uh, I don't think Lucas was able to join us for that session, so Nero was the first one to go out. Yeah. But Nero also was the first one to go out after he blew he had, me up after he planted a detonator on Nab that self-destructed. and it, took was, you, it was yeah,
2: that was painful. Like I was worried that our boss wasn't gonna be bossy enough because that hurt.
0: Yep And then Nero sustains an injury that takes him out of the fight. Uh, not long after that Kelia gets taken out. And then I think after that, Saf. So basically, we're paring down to the players at the table, one character each.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, because at that point, also, it's worth noting Casey was playing both Brack and Saf, which got yep.
2: interesting. Got really interesting in the next season.
0: So we're down to Brack, Drua, and Vrolin. Because Nukon also at that point is pulling out the injured and helping get people to safety. Yeah. So we're down. Nukon to those final was three also characters. dealing with
2: his own possession at the same time. Yes, he was
0: because we, we had, had to had
2: balance out out. Freedom Nadd's uh, spirit, so I threw in another Old Republic, because I said I was getting my wish, and I'll, I'll say it probably four or five more times before the episode's over. Um, we threw in another Old Republic Jedi, who has a really cool story. I, I advise everybody to go check it out. His name was Uh Ulik Keldroma, and he was bouncing around Nukon's head, kind of helping Nukon...
0: Guide from, the party. Guide
2: the party, but also specifically guide Drua's Force Awakening to help beat up the big bad so that was kind of cool, and it was kind of neat to see how each of us dealt with a, a quote unquote an extra entity in our characters' heads. Whereas my mine was more of a complete and total shift into a new character. Whereas you got it, you got the fun part of having both your characters, both your character and Ulik, at the table, kind of at the same time.
0: Well, and it worked out that Ulik wasn't too big of a departure of how I was playing Nukon. And and that's one element that we've talked about with RPGs, is kind of finding out not just what your character's personality is, but also their voice and the the way they look, their mannerisms. And Nukon's and alien characters, so the voice is really the only element to play into, and I always thought it would be kind of funny to have him sound a little bit like Sam Elliott. So kind of, again, the old, gruff mentor with a very low voice. It uh, just worked so well, uh, even if he doesn't have, yeah, the, the perfect mustache for obviously our audience that can't see Caleb. That session plays out, and we get to the end of it, with a couple of interesting wrinkles. The first is the fact that uh, our friend Carolyn was there and we weren't sure if she was going to be able to play because we didn't have an opportunity to introduce her character before that battle with NAD. But mm, yeah. we ended it with realistically maybe a half hour, or 45 minutes more of playing time. So then we get to drop Morena into the story. Yes. And she's dropping in because she was on a Star Destroyer. That Star Destroyer was also carrying Commander Stryker, our big bat who had followed the party, and now the Empire is essentially descending on the city of Isis, and the session that would follow we just called In the Shadow of the Arrowhead. Yeah. Because there is yeah. a Star Destroyer descending from above. Hang it is up. terrifying, and things are about to get bad. Yeah. Uh, Striker sent out a message at the very beginning that was basically like your hostage scenario. We have people that are close to you, other allies of the party has had, hidden throughout the city. They have collars that have been rigged with poison bacta. You have one hour to find them all. And that message, it's worth noting. I will quickly check here just to make sure I get the track right. Because again, for you, the influence was Old Republic. Uh, For me, the influence was Firefly. And the music that I put underneath that message, because I actually recorded it and played it for the party. So in Stryker's voice, this is what's coming for you. And if you want a taste of what the party got, it's the track Reverse from the Firefly soundtrack uh, by uh, Greg Edmondson. Uh, There's a track called Saved, Isn't Home, and Reavers, and Reavers is the last part, and it's just got these sinister drum builds and goes up to a crescendo that's just terrifying.
2: It it does merit to point out that Morena's character, getting dropped in right then, is is really interesting due to her background as an Imperial medical officer. Uh, She's actually, when we start introducing some of the players' more involved background stories, she'd actually been following the party around, picking up the party's mess left over was her whole background her whole character background was just going oh my gosh how can one group of idiots cause this much damage
0: and Carol and I had talked about that when we were developing the character because we knew we wanted to drop her in but she wasn't in town at that time and it's Mm -hmm. like okay so how do we and this was before we were all playing virtually so it's like okay so how do we interject this character into the party when we get an opportunity and once she was in town and able to play we had her there and available and she had definitely Seen some stuff.
2: She saw some stuff.
1: <laughs> so at this point, you guys are nearing the end of your season. Stakes are getting a little bit higher. Things are wrapping up. And there was a big character moment that had to do with the character leaving the party.
0: This was interesting because, and I think we all have those moments when we're playing characters over a long period of time. It's got to be the right fit. And there are always moments, uh, I think, when we have a kit for our character that we just don't like. I remember when I was playing Heidelstone, I greatly enjoyed his spell casting abilities and all the different things that he got to do uh, when the first time I played D anD D. But then also, it was quite possible for him to get hit by an enemy, put into some unfriendly terrain, and put into dying state in a single turn. Yeah, so wizards, I didn't. Wizards of squishy. Yes, indeed. So there are moments where you don't you love elements of your character, but don't like others, and are it's worth clarifying because we said uh, the name Caleb about uh, earlier, but it's another friend of ours, uh, Caleb Lindemeyer, uh, who was playing as Roland. I uh, had kind of grown tired of him and, yeah, and just didn't did, he didn't give him a ton of opportunities other than a lot of exploring and kind of the sensitivity aspect because his highest skill really was notice. Yeah,
2: he had some really cool character moments, but we were getting into the tail end of the season where everything was becoming very combat heavy. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, he was just not designed for combat. Usually when you have a character death in a, in a tabletop RPG, it's because the dice rolls didn't like them, not because the char- the player was like, hey, I want to kill my character.
0: And he came to me and we and had that said, conversation. Hey, I want to kill
2: my character. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so at that point, we did start building a replacement, but that's happening behind the scenes, Caleb and yes. I. I. think Did I let you in on you that? You let me in on it
2: yeah. because we were actively trying to figure out how to end the season. And yep. you're like, hey, someone's going to die. And I went, it's not going to be Silk, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no. And you said, no. And I went, oh, okay, good.
0: And so the way we played it out, because... Caleb is there and I just in general especially with large groups of people I like games that aren't elimination games and that applies to tabletop games in general mm-hmm. not just RPGs like if someone's there I want them to be able to play for as long as they can and so we play out the final battle the stormtroopers have entered the city we're trying to fight our way back to our ship and there is a battle at uh, actually I think it was the Crimson Dawn base they had a museum on the northeast side of the city that was their stronghold and we've got allies and tanks we've got enemies approaching from all sides the stormtroopers are closing in there's fog and smoke and damage everywhere and then out of the fog comes a stormtrooper who gets a shot on Roland Roland standing on top of a tank striker fires Roland drops dead striker disappears into the fog and it shocked everybody at yeah, the table yeah the whole table
2: cuz it was there was no there was almost no roll nope cuz at that point we were kind of in the falling action of that episode we were gearing up for the final episode and it was, I mean, it was brutal. Stryker just stepped up and, and it wasn't just because Roland got hit off of the tank but Stryker put another shot like between the eyeballs as he was on the ground. He was already incapacitated and then Stryker came up and literally executed him. And everybody at the table went, oh goodness, what has happened? <laughs> and I remember the looks on everyone's faces. I knew it was coming but I wasn't, I wasn't even quite prepared for that. Um, and then we were like, and The next episode, next session's our last episode, guys. So uh, be ready to fight the big bad. And the looks on all the players' faces was
0: the big bad literally just killed one of the party. The big
2: members. just killed one of the party members without a roll. Um, do we? Can we even fight this guy? And so then the the last the last episode happened, and we we geared up for a very cool assault on the Imperial Star Destroyer that was in sub orbit, and teamed up with a Rebel Strike Group, which was kind of fun. Introduced some cool characters that we would then use later.
0: And we had at that point an A battle and a B battle. Yes. Because we had Silk, Brack, Saf, Nero, and Niv, Meyer's yes, new, new character from the Rebels, going in to take on Striker, uh, which was good that they had him because Niv was a big transition who also had a healing ability and a massive wingspan and was even taller than Nukon. Yeah, so, big scary
2: lizard. Yes, indeed. Big, scary, angry lizard.
0: And he helped everyone else survive-ish that uh, encounter with Striker. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. And then meanwhile, Nukon, Morena, Drua, and Kelia are back on the ship in an Imperial hangar and dealing with their own assault as an Imperial Death Trooper unit led by the Imperial informant that Brack shot in the, in the first session. episode. Come back to bite us. And yes. so that battle going on uh, as everything else is playing out was just terrifying because it looked like for a while there, potentially Nukon's not going to survive because yep. Drew is injured. Kelia and Morena are up in the top of the ship while Nukon's fighting him below 1v1. And it looked for a while there like potentially our, our well, yeah. mentor character isn't going to survive.
2: We knew a little bit going into that final episode that we were going to have to do it that way, but we didn't have those players at the table. You know, Which is why we had the A. Which and the B. is why we had the, the A. And the a. a was everyone
0: who was there, the B was everyone. Exactly. That was and being that wasn't by originally
2: me. part of the planet. It turned out to be one of the best parts of that episode, in my opinion. So yeah, we 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 made we made it through. We got to the final fight, uh, a la Final Fantasy, where you're like, the theme music has changed and all uh, the everybody's kinda of dancing their bobbin and you're sitting here going, I'm out of health potions. Um <laughs> and you go in and you go into into the fight and it was I mean, I think we did a really good job of setting up Stryker to be a superbly superbly difficult boss
0: and they come in and just picture a room with ultimately something I feel like the sequel trilogy kind of leaned on more just like the ambiance of like just red lighting a bunch of stormtroopers lined up in kind of a semicircle and then strikers voice resonating over the top just going you're about to experience what is known as a shell game yeah because they don't know which one he is
2: you have no that was that was part of one of the best aspects of him as a villain was you didn't know who he was or when when he, where he was when he was there
0: And when the dust settled, I think most of the players in that group were significantly injured.
2: Almost everybody was on death's door.
0: Saf had blown herself up to get the kill shot on Stryker set up for Brack. And then the ship is descending and is going to crash on top of the city unless someone stays behind to make sure that that doesn't happen. At which point Silk falls on that sword.
2: Ducked into the the bridge and uh, sealed the doors behind him and rode the ship down. In onto Andron so where it would not crash on top of the city because we worked in that Stryker always gets kind of like the last laugh kind of a deal and his the ship's engines were tied to his pulse. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was like one of the rudest, most mean things I think yeah. we've ever done to them was that not only did you just kill this guy but by doing that you just doomed a city of a millions and millions right. of people.
0: Spoiler alert for Watchmen, uh, the HBO TV series, but there's a sequence where this villain has Takes a hostage and says that they rigged up a bomb with a dead man switch, and then the character uh, Lori, who we know as uh, Silk Spectre from the original book, and, and for those who've seen it, the movie, caps the guy, just takes him out. But then we hear ticking; the bomb's about to go off. Everyone's able to get out of the scenario, and afterward, Lori's talking to the main character, and she just says, "I mean, half the guys who do a dead man switch don't take the time to rig it up. I thought he was bluffing." <laughs> <laughs> Fair, fair. <laughs> and so Stryker goes down, the ship is going to go down with him. And we had one character incapacitated, one who had died the previous session, and our captain is believed dead, and suddenly we have set up for Brack to have this coming of age journey without yeah, his kinda, best friend. Yeah. And the the planning siege for future seasons, but in so many ways, and, and Steven, this is something you've been a little bit critical of, and I and I completely agree with you, is that season one, our first eight sessions at that Star Wars campaign. Were the only time where our characters didn't have plot armor. Yeah. Where they went in and the stakes and the danger felt real. They were potentially not going to come back from a mission or a scenario that they were going into.
2: That was one of the challenges of doing this, doing the whole Star Wars journey, the way we did it with having both of us DMing, was at some point we really did care about the story we were telling, obviously, but we also felt, it also felt like, well sometimes I kind of felt like well Ben doesn't want to kill this character so I can't kill this character or I don't want to do this so Ben can't do it this way um, we started getting we butted heads every once in a while it wasn't anything major obviously we're still friends we're still here today doing this but <laughs> yes, indeed. yeah that first season was the only one where I, I like to say about my D&D campaigns the threat of death should be ever present and it was really the only time that 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 was one of the cool things about doing this Star Wars journey setting season one aside which was really a lot of fun was the players so with that opening document where we introduced all of the characters in the very very first episode we set a precedent that you could write things for your characters and that they may or may not be included into the canon of the story we were telling
0: we started leading off sessions with bios for characters. yeah Yeah.
2: and so we saw those bios coming from all over. Almost every single person at the table wrote something for their character to add to the story, which was very, very cool.
1: So I know you guys touched on it just a second ago about the challenges of DMing together about, you know, well, I want to kill this character. I don't want to kill this character. But I want to circle back to something you mentioned before, Stephen, of knowing a bit of the story in advance, like knowing, oh, this plot point is going to happen. I want to ask you about the challenges of being able to put aside your DM brain for your player brain for a second.
2: Knowing the plot ahead of time and playing the character, particularly for Silk, it almost felt more natural because Silk was the kind of character who had a plan for everything always, or at least he acted like he did. So it made him seem more like the super cynical, super seasoned spy that he was kind of trying to be. But at some point, Ben and I started switching the sessions that we would DM. So Ben would be the DM for the table uh, on one session, and then a the next session or two sessions later, I would take over. And that got more difficult because, and I think that's it's the the fault of having a DM PC in general in any tabletop. It gets difficult not to treat them like the main character. Thankfully, most of Silk's storyline kind of wrapped up and took a took a backseat with the Nad fight until almost towards the end, the middle of season three, when you realize that he's actually been dealing with the leftovers of that spirit for a whole season and a half. I was able, it was a little bit easier with him, but it is, a, it's a big challenge to switch between those two ideas of being player and then being DM. At some point, it stopped being a switch. It was just, this is how this works. Because when we played for a long time. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, and it's one of those things where, and this is why... There's a variety of reasons why we wanted to make the focus of this conversation the first season of the Star Wars campaign, just in terms of how contained it was. And even then, having nine players in your party, even when some are NPCs, is pretty much the upper limit. And things expanded even further in future seasons. The story arcs did get a little bit complicated. And ultimately, because we'd taken Silk off the table, that was when we made the first switch because you didn't have a DMPC in the mix. Yeah. And then we were kind of trying to figure out, okay, how are we timing this? How are we running sessions? I think there was one session where I kind of had to run it at the last minute, and it was like after I had gotten back from a trip down to a Comic-Con and was running it on like two hours of sleep, yeah. which is not a good idea if you're a game
2: manager. I don't even remember why I couldn't be there, but I do remember this happening. Yeah, um,
0: and so it, the way we had things set up in that first season, just meeting up periodically to say, okay, for the next couple of sessions, we're looking at this general arc. But then our players are still completely free to affect the world within that arc. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what roads they're going to go down, who they're going to interact with, how different things are going to play out. And you do kind of have to keep up. At that point, it is like playing a lot of video games, which is why, I mean, RPG and RPG video games are a whole genre unto themselves. Mm -hmm. You're going to have different scenarios depending on whether a player at your table decides to talk to that character or disparage that character, or kill
2: that character. There's going to be different things
0: that play out as a result of those actions. Multiple
2: times I almost killed players. It's fine. I really thought about it. (laughs) And then you
0: also have moments where as you're moving on and the story changes, the characters that you created in the first run aren't functioning the same way. Mm -mm. Because I found Nukon and Kelia both essential to the plot in Season 1 and varying degrees of useless in Season 2. And then... We brought you back. Yeah, we, we brought you New, back. con was, was an essential part of Season 3, Keelya less so.
2: Even the days where I was frustrated or you were frustrated with the process, it was still great. The highlight of weeks to get together and go, all right, so how are we going to screw with them this time? Which was always kind of my... Uh, I'm a bit sadistic as a DM. Uh, I don't know if you knew this about me, Caleb, but I'm really not, really not nice as a DM. So my, my goal is always to see how uncomfortable can I make my players... More realistically, how much can I make my players fear for the lives of their characters? And We haven't
1: played together yet, but one day. One day. I'm looking very forward to and it. And you've played
0: RPGs with me, and, and that means, yes, in this dynamic, I was good cop. Pulling this off, took the right group, assembled at the table. We had the time, and we had a wonderful partnership to execute what we were doing, it, because it, when we started out again, encyclopedic knowledge of world, beginning and getting stronger knowledge of game system... And then ultimately it was just let's talk about what cool scenario we could put the players in and different cool things we could build, like figuring out. And this is why, again, I I really like the fate system. It's really easy to modify. You're going to break the game a few times if you did. along the way. We did. Giant
2: snake to fight giant lizard. That was broken. (laughs) That was fun, but it was, well, it wasn't. It was fun, but it, it was also broken. Yeah.
0: And and but but with the right partnership, you can make it work, and you can find your way through the challenges you have. The same can also be said for for podcasting, which is why it's been such a joy to get back in the studio with you guys. And and I say that looking at the two of you as well as our friend uh, John Dawkins on the board. And I know, obviously, never is a long time. I'm sure we'll circle back to the Star Wars campaign someday. And at that point, we'll have more stories to talk about when we come back here. Mm-hmm. This whole episode has had some throwback moments from thinking back to a campaign that started over two years ago to recalling how and when Steven and I met when we were sophomores in high school competing in speech and debate. With that in mind, I need to tell you about how I met Dan Kale. Dan was a junior at Bishop Dwyer High School when I started there as a freshman. Between some connections within our social circles, being involved in similar groups, and having a mutual interest in music, we quickly became friends. At the time, Dan was already an awesome bass player and I was playing the drums. He inspired me to pick up the bass guitar, an instrument that remains my primary go-to to to this day. The following year, I remember a conversation I had with Dan, now a senior, when he told me he was considering a call to join the Catholic priesthood. 10 years later, Dan is now Deacon Dan. He and a good friend of his, going back to their time in seminary, Father Stephen Felicia, have a podcast of their own called the Deus Volt Podcast. For a little bit more on what you're about to hear, I'll turn things over to Storytelling Breakdown writer, editor, and producer, Stephen Stahofsky.
2: So the last time we did an entirely Star Wars-centered episode, we dedicated both the main breakdown portion of the show and the spotlight to Star Wars content. I did the spotlight for that one on the 2005 Star Wars Battlefront II, and that episode is called Episode Four: The Foresight to Retain International Merchandising Rights. Our spotlight for this episode comes from Deacon Dan and Father Stephen, of the Deus Vault podcast here in Fort Wayne. Since I spearheaded this project to provide this spotlight, I should include a couple of prefaces. One, I reached out to the co-creators of the Deus Vault podcast and asked them to discuss the philosophy and practicality of the Jedi Code. Father Stephen and Deacon Dan are both Star Wars fans who studied philosophy and theology for years before becoming priests. So this is something they are especially qualified to do. You'll also hear that the idea of combining Star Wars with an RPG is not new or unique to Ben and myself. The second preface we need to offer is more of a disclaimer. Ben and I are both Catholics, but the Storytelling Breakdown team is made up of a diverse range of religious views and backgrounds. We decided not to ask either of our guests for this spotlight to change how they would normally present or discuss their ideas. This Spotlight will sound like a shorter version of one of their own episodes. Their perspective is framed by the experience of Catholicism, and we hope you find this is an enjoyable listen. Our goal is to provide unique perspectives on our favorite aspects and pieces of storytelling, and we are not trying to tell you how you should live or believe. Storytelling Breakdown, especially our Spotlight portions and our blogs, remains a place for all to share why they love the stories they love.
4: We're the Dave's Fault Podcast. I am Deacon Dan. I'm Father Stephen. And we are a couple of crazy clerics in the church who are talking about all sorts of things. And today, the guys from Storytelling Breakdown want us to do something on the Jedi Code. We oh. are working on talking about these things that are... This is from Star Wars, for those of you who don't know. That's where uh, the Force is from. That's where the Force
3: is from. <laughs> that was from Star Wars. That's from Star Wars. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was from Tommy Boy. That
4: was from Tommy... Yeah, I know. Anyway, very good. So why don't we just go ahead and jump into it. The Jedi Code. Father Steven, you looked up a little bit of the background on where this thing came from. First off, what is the Jedi Code? Can we just kind of get all of the words into oh, people's
3: sure. brains? So it's it's like a... A mantra is basically a way to describe it. And it's, it's a philosophy of life that supposedly this is how the Jedi, sort of the Jedi of the light side, good Jedi, right. are, they, they see the universe. And it goes like this There is no emotion, there is peace. There is no ignorance, there is knowledge. There is no passion, there is serenity. There is no chaos, there is harmony. There is no death, there is the force
4: yep that, that wraps it, it all up. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Now where did that come from? Well, I found this on Wikipedia, which is the Star Wars oh, Wookie- wiki Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, I know right that's right Anyways, the uh, easy chewy. <laughs> but the uh, the original like the, the concepts like when they wrote this down, like the writers and stuff, it appears to originate in in early drafts of the Empire Strikes Back in the early script. and there it wasn't a, a real mantra like a like a philosophical view of the universe. It was more like a code of chivalry. So, for instance, what got cut out of the script was when Luke Skywalker's taking off to go to Cloud City. This didn't make it into the the final version. But he swears a code to Yoda. And apparently, like, they they see it as as sort of, well, it's knightly. Obviously, we always see Jedi Knights but the code went something like this. I, Luke Skywalker, do swear on my honor and on the faith of the Brotherhood of Knights to use the force only for good, denying, turning always from the dark side to dedicate my life to the cause of freedom and justice. If I should fail of this vow, my life shall be forfeit here and hereafter. And they just need to add in amen. So awesome. Everything is Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of like the point of the show is, is we're going to try and find it, the catholicism in here so what they switched it into and again this the first code that i read the mantra came from the 1987 role-playing game star wars role-playing game so it's sort of like dungeons and dragons but set in the star wars universe if you wanted to play as a jedi knight or as i imagine a sith lord or or some space pirate or <laughs> two lovable droids you'd have yeah, to play as true. one probably but right. the uh, <laughs> anyways the uh that that was what they they put in there And, again, the idea, and you sort of see this in the movies, the good Jedis are always taught to, like, control their emotions and their fear. And because fear leads to the dark side, which Mm -hmm. allows you to sort of, like, tap into your anger and use your emotion to drive you in a negative sense. Yeah. But if you you master that, then you're sort of, like, at peace with the cosmos. You see that as, like, Luke standing on one hand as he, like, lifts rocks and holds Yoda on his foot. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really a good and, scene,
4: and the the opposite of that would be Anakin, who falls to his you know over emotional stance with Padme, and man is he over emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and to, to a, to a uh, yeah major fault. Taking uh, her away from me, <laughs> <laughs> you
3: yeah. will try.
4: Sorry. Anyway, fortunately, intellectually, we have the high ground here. Ah, oh. uh, <laughs> go on. So. So, yeah, kind of juxtaposing Luke and his own father, one definitely sort of gave in to what the Jedi code stands against, and one sort of is able to is able to live it well, right. He supposedly.
3: masters he masters the code. And again, like as you live this sort of mantra, the more you understand, the deeper you understand this sort of like, again, I'm gonna just say it, Zen Buddhist kind of mindset. The closer you are to the force, the more you can utilize the force because you, you understand the greater reality that's beyond this reality. Right So
4: yeah anyways. So I think I think maybe it'd be helpful to sort of get into some of the details here and give a little bit more of a, a theological perspective on on some of the parts of the code. When it comes to the author of a, of a book or of any any story, yeah. very often there's sort of a literary mindset that says that once the, the work is out there, it sort of has a life of its own. it's really not connected to what the author thinks about it anymore. I'm not sure what I think about that, but there—that seems to be sort of like a literary idea, or you know, a, a, an idea in literature that it's not really about the idea that's being given by the author so much as it is like what the story tells for itself,
3: perhaps. The fandom is, though, is really the keeper of the canon, so to speak.
4: Right, exactly. But I think what needs to be said is that like it seems that George Lucas, when he was writing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. was really leaning heavily on a lot of philosophies and theologies of of far east, you know, sure, religions, sure. buddhism, mystic and,
3: mindsets.
4: Right. All these sort of things. And there are certainly elements that are involved in you can even see it here in the code. However, if we really if we if it's true that any sort of literary thing or any sort of story kind of takes on a life of its own, it is sort of separate from any anything the that the writer was using to sort of underlie the thought
3: right well i'm pretty sure george lucas wasn't involved in in the creation of the star wars role-playing game i mean the rights belong to him i'm sure and i'm sure he made some money off of it god bless him (laughs) but the uh but like somebody looked Mm -hmm. at like what they saw in those movies and then extrapolated from it and said well this is is like this mystical zen like there is in fact the reality you encounter is the illusion is sort of the tone of this right and the truth of it is you are actually at peace. And and we were just talking about the martial artist Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee had this, this philosophy about how you had to be like water. And so, like, you just moved around your opponent, and you were able to wear him down and encapsulate him. You were never frustrated by him, at least you shouldn't be. And so, and thus, you were able to conquer him with ease and and with, with you know, fluidity. And... So, I mean, let's just go through this code. Because there's there's value in this. Catholicism teaches you that your emotions are a good thing, provided you are ruling them and not the other way around. Anger tells you what's injustice, for instance. You know, oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Because I'm experiencing some level of injustice and it should be corrected. That's the source of anger. Okay, so what happens? Do you let that drive you or do you master the anger and, and sort of use it for the proper good, which is in whatever... Situation may be, I can help reset the situation. And you think about combat, for instance. It's very hard to give orders when you're fighting for you and your buddies' lives and not be angry. But if you allow yourself to be so enraptured by the emotion that you're blinded, you're probably going to get everybody killed on your side. Whereas, you know, because I just want to pursue the enemy and get them. Uh, <laughs> 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 so ideally, in combat, you're using that drive, that emotion, to do something. Well, the Jedi Code says there is no emotion. There is peace. And the idea behind that, I'm pretty sure, is that they see the emotion as, I don't want to say purely negative, but that seems to be the case.
4: Yeah, that seems to be the case. And I think a Catholic twist on it would be to talk about um, the gift of the Holy Spirit, self-control. Mm-hmm. Like, like there is, there is room for, you know, a, a, an idea that it's like, okay, we have emotions— but they aren't the thing that drives what we do. They might play a part. They might be sort of an underlying factor. They're mm-hmm. a part of our human nature. Right. All these sort of things. But, but being able to sort of act in the world with with not just having that as the only driving force. You know, having perhaps virtue. Right. In, you know, in in cahoots with our with our <laughs> uh, emotions.
3: Then there's there is no ignorance. There is knowledge. Now this is interesting because this is a very westernized mantra of a far eastern concept yep because people (laughs) because it really is like it's clearly written by like someone in america or in in western europe right uh, on what like they think makes sense from from a far eastern mindset because oftentimes this is compared to like buddhism and there's a lot of of discipline in buddhist monks and they can do incredible feats of strength because they are so so self-disciplined mind over matters is the classic line and they can do crazy stuff. Great. Praise God. Right. But what's the point they're going for? The point they're going for is self-annihilation. And now I, I don't mean it like from a suicide standpoint. They actually don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. They believe that's giving in to despair. Right. But self-annihilation from the standpoint of if I can realize that I am in fact nothing, then when I do pass away, I will become nothing. Right. And thus suffering ceases, which is they see as the ultimate bane. Of existence. But existence you see is an illusion, and all they have to do is realize that and they stop being. Yeah. So, like I said, this is this is very Western. It, because it says there is no ignorance, there is knowledge. Again, there's sort of this negative comparison with, say, emotion. When I'm angry, I don't think. I don't have a grasp of of the reality around me and what's truly going on. So there is that sort of, again, there's a sense of like peaceful control here but if i empty myself of my ignorance suddenly i'm like more alive to the universe
4: right there's a certain degree in which this might sort of be useful because again in so in in six words or seven words on the page you're not really getting very much of the philosophy underneath what the words actually mean in the Star Wars world. So for us, we have to sort of read these and, and put the meaning underneath it so to make it make any sense of it. But in that situation, like when we someday, please God, die and go to heaven, we see things as they are. Like there is a certain sense in which ignorance is no more. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's something that is a part of the of the fallen nature of man. And it's like, okay, well, you know, in the end, ignorance really isn't a part of it.
3: Right. No, You will know as much as you possibly can right. in eternity. Right. Please, God, if you're united with him. Right. The, so as I said, this is a very Western kind of concept here. Even though, like, our initial take is like, whoa, man, that's like so Zen. That's so deep.
4: People like to sort of lay it on that, but I, but I think it, it can be useful well, in, in our understanding of it. Yeah.
3: Uh, and then again, they go through a couple more. There is no passion, there is no serenity. there is no chaos. there is harmony. And then the final one is is particularly interesting to me. There is no death. there is the force
4: right. and this this gets into some of that back into that some like self annihilation possibility. Mm-hmm. that seems to be sort of the far East theology. It's sort of visualized when you watch the movies and you see for the in the very first movie when obi-wan. Meets his end with Darth Vader. Surprise! If you haven't watched Episode Four, spoiler alert: yeah. <laughs> Darth Vader kills Obi Wan, but then he kills in air Right, he just kind of poofs into he disappears. Nothing, sort right. of. Maybe but who knows? And then later on, you discover, and actually, almost immediately, you hear Obi Wan's voice right, telling, telling Luke, Luke to get run. out. Yeah, yeah, run, Luke, run. But I think you, you brought up a good point when we were discussing this. Mm. It's like the self annihilation is being is like being completely subsumed into. The universe. Right, from, right, right. From the perspective of like. Well,
3: this is more of a Hindu mindset. Hindu the, the Buddhists extrapolated from the Hindus. Right. But like in, in Hinduism, like you become one with the universe. It's like pantheism. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, like you are totally united with existence right. in, in whatever that is. So it's. But there is self annihilation in that. You are a drop of water returning to the ocean.
4: Whereas we would say that we are brought into the divine.
3: Right. right. But but you're not self-annihilated. You right. are more yourself than you've ever been. Right. By being united with the divinity, your individuality remains. The words
4: deification, divinization, and sanctification are all more or less the same words with different nuances, <laughs> right? Like it's about being brought into the divine life of God. That's what heaven is. Mm-hmm. And 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 for when when we do that, you know, we don't lose ourselves to God. Just as, as, like, the Hindus would think, you kind of lose yourself.
3: Right. Your individuality is subsumed, right. Say, yeah. So, but even even in, in the movies, they don't buy into that because Obi-Wan comes back, right, as an individual. You see Yoda and you see Anakin as force ghosts, they're called, right. And it's so much, like, m-
4: much more akin to a soul,
3: right. Yeah. So, again, like, it's a very Western take on Eastern meditations. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, this sounds so good, but really, you know, like, the individual's still there. And so, like, you see these. These force ghosts show back up. So there is no death. There is the force. Like there is this idea that, that you will always exist and, and become part of something greater. And again, it, it's, a, it's an interesting way to, to sort of view, view the cosmos. And there is some – and this is interesting because we're Catholics and so we like to have both and. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. It's not just like one way and that's it. But you see higher and higher levels of contemplation, and you sort of see serenity in that. I mean, serenity is mentioned in this in this mantra. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for instance, every parish priest should so diocesan priests, even we should have some sort of level of contemplation. Where again, like they taught us at seminary, you take a daily holy hour,
4: and you pray the breviary. Yeah, and and you and, you know mass and, uh, every day, other
3: yeah. other devotions too. Mm-hmm. There are things like, you're supposed
4: to do every single day,
3: and you find time to contemplate God, mm-hmm. and that's just on a. That's just for the guy who's honestly should be dedicating a large chunk of his daily life, perhaps the majority, to serving the people, to be to interacting and taking care of the parish. Mm-hmm. Cool.
4: Yeah, many priests, whether they're religious or secular, you know, diocesan priests or religious order priests, mm-hmm. as well as the lay faithful, are you know what we call in the world but not of it. Right, I mean, it's it is a, a sense that we do have to put aside that time of dedicated prayer and contemplation, so that we can be well prepared for that being brought into the divine life of God when it does come. Yeah, that's a part of the sanctification. That's a part of that's a part of our life now. It's like it's it's like a scrimmage, you know, for a for a sport. Like yeah. the reason you play the scrimmage is so that you can be well-prepared for the big game when it comes. Like, Ooh. the reason you do these things on the order of contemplation now is because you need to be sort of, in a certain sense, well-prepared for when contemplation is the thing you're doing because that's what <laughs> heaven is. It's, it's like perfect contemplation of the divine Godhead. Like,
3: yeah, that's important. If you step away from, like, the secular priesthood and you look at, say, like, the religious orders, mm-hmm. you will find higher levels of contemplation in that. And, I mean, you can sort of see this in in the Star Wars universe. Obviously, the Jedi is supposed to be, like, the Grand Poobah of, like, Mastery of the Force. But then there are other people who are interacting with the Force at varying levels. Leia, for instance, Mm -hmm. in the original trilogy, seems to have some high-level connection with the Force. Because, spoiler alert, she's Luke's sister. And then there are other characters, too, who seem to have minor interactions with it. -hmm. Or quote unquote force sensitive,
4: right? But this whole idea of sort of disappearing into nothingness, even the Lord Himself says, you know, without me, you can do nothing, right? So in a certain sense, like we, our strength does only kind of come from Him, right? When we, when, when you get it down to, oh, without me, you can do nothing, right? Without me, you can do nothing, and yeah. I think people people who enter into very, very contemplative religious orders, especially monastic communities, I'm thinking of like Carthusians, the guys who basically live as hermits, but in communities. They have mass together and they they pray together, the breviary, the liturgy of the hours. Those kind of communities are very much about disappearing from the world. In fact, the language around monastic life, the language around, you know, eremitic life, the language around these ascetical lives, these different orders, is dying to the world. Right? It's it's as if I do not exist in the world anymore. My entire life is given over to God. Now granted, of course, there's the the bodily reality of like no I am still in the world obviously. I'm doing work with this religious community. I'm living yeah. with them and I'm working with them.
3: Well, the Jedi are an order. They they right. function together like monks to some degree.
4: Yep. I mean, even even look at the uh <laughs> look at their robes. I mean, they're wearing like brown and black and they're Oh yeah. you know, they wear very simple clothing and they have a very like, controlled demeanor about how they live. And it's, it's like, that does very much smack of a monastic community, or at least a religious community.
3: Well, I mean, they even stress celibacy right. in, in one of the movies. I can't remember which one. Uh, one of the prequels. But, but yeah. and the, hence, hence, Anakin's real bad fall. The aspect of discipline, a unified, you know, group, an order. And from that idea comes this sort of philosophical underpinning. Mm-hmm. And... To one extent, I mean, obviously this was written just sort of so that it sounded cool. Kind of thing. It's it's kind of shallow to a degree. It, it's it's something you just sort of throw out there, and, and the kid who's rolling dice and pretending to be Obi Wan's like this is something I can chant because I go into battle.
4: Yeah, there are five lines, and each each of them consists of seven words. It's almost a haiku, and there are people who have written all sorts of lore about what it means and all that kind oh, of. Oh sure, and
3: which is has its it's fun and that sort of thing. Yeah,
4: I mean it's just good fiction, just mm-hmm. good fiction, good good fantasy
3: and all that kind of stuff. So, and I think we've actually mined some some decent value out of it from. A, Catholic standpoint.
4: Yeah, and again, it's you have to sort of keep, in, you have to kind of uh, suspend disbelief for a little bit and just sort of look at it for what it is and and where it kind of came from, and see what good things you can take from it. What is it? Test everything and keep, keep what is what good. St. Paul, so there it is. Test test Star Wars and keep what is good. Right, even if there are pieces of the Jedi Code that you know. Uh, There might be pieces of of the Jedi code that might actually be helpful for you in your spiritual life. Who knows?
2: Right. This spotlight marks the start of crossovers on Storytelling Breakdown. We're going to hear from many other podcasters on our show. And if you want to hear more from the Deus Vault podcast, you can find more about them on their Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find their podcast wherever podcasts are found. We'll link to all of that in the show notes of this episode. One
0: final thought. I mentioned the time Deacon Dan told me he was first considering the call to become a priest. And as of this year, his journey will be reaching that important chapter. Congratulations to the soon-to-be Father Dan Kale. All of us here on the Storytelling Breakdown team wish you all the best going forward.
1: Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Stephen Stachowski joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Chout Productions. We are in John's studio space today. It's been awesome.
0: Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott.
1: Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites.
0: And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. Wayne Shout
3: Productions Wayne Shout